Open God's holy word to Paul's letter to the Galatians. Galatians chapter 3, I'll be reading verses 7 through 14. Our focus will be on verses 10 through 14. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, And you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evidence that no one is justified before God by the law, for it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, forgive us of our arrogance in thinking in any, even in the smallest of ways that we get in good with our Heavenly Father in relation to what we do. Father, impress upon any here that do not know Christ that if they would relate to Him outside of Christ, the curse that lies over their soul. And for those here that do know You, astonish us anew that the curse that should fall upon us, fell on Christ in our stead that we might be blessed. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. The occasion of this letter in the broadest scope concerns nothing less than a denial of the Gospel of Christ and a desertion of the Christ of the Gospel. Paul has said, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. 
As we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. More specifically, the perversion of the gospel that these troublers are peddling and that the Galatians are buying is that in addition to Christ, for you to stand righteous before God, you have to do works of the law. The first clarifying thesis statement concerning this comes in chapter 2 and verse 16, and it's stated multiple times in multiple ways so that it is impossible to miss. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Now, understanding this, with that clear, consider the accumulated argumentation that is already amassed for this singular point, and we've yet to reach the halfway point. We're just shy of it, but we've yet to reach the halfway point. Paul has argued that his gospel, this gospel of justification by faith alone in Christ alone, was received not from man, but from Christ, 1, 11 through 23. Second, he's contended that the gospel he preaches not an apostle's gospel, but the apostle's gospel, 2, 1 through 10. Third, he shows the truthfulness of the doctrine of justification by faith as he handles the accusation that this would lead to sin and license. This would make Christ a servant of sin, 2.17-21. Fourth, he's demonstrated that the receiving of the Holy Spirit by hearing with faith necessarily, irrefutably, clearly, indicates that we're then justified by faith alone. And fifth, he's established that it's those who of faith are the children of Abraham as they're justified just as he were to stand alongside him receiving the promised blessing 3, 6 through 9. Now in all of this, but especially in verses 6 through 9, Paul has been arguing positively that justification is by faith and faith alone. What happens in these verses is that he argues negatively, demonstrating that it cannot be by works of the law. It must be by faith because all who rely on works of the law, verse 10, are under a curse. You see the connection. Verse 9 those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith, because if you're relying on works of the law, you're under a curse. Why? Because all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. Because Scripture says, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. He references Deuteronomy 26, 27. 
the classicus locus, the classic location in the Old Testament for dealing with curse and blessing is Deuteronomy 27 and 28. In Deuteronomy 27, Moses is giving instructions to Israel for a ceremony that's to take place after they cross the Jordan. And there are two stones that they're to set up and then plaster so that they might engrave the words of the law on them. And having done that, half of the tribes are to stand on Mount Gerizim, representing the blessing. And the other half are to stand on Mount Ebal, representing the curse. And then what follows from Deuteronomy 27.15 forward is the record of the charge that the Levites are then to put forward to the people. And it has this pattern of dealing with the curse, and then blessing, and then the curse. This is the opening salvo concerning the curse. Deuteronomy 27, 15-26. Cursed be the man who makes a carved or cast metal image. An abomination to Yahweh, a thing made by the hands of a craftsman, and sets it up in secret. And all the people shall answer and say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who dishonors his father or his mother, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who moves his neighbor's landmark, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who misleads a blind man on the road. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who perverts the justice due to the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who lies with his father's wife because he has uncovered his father's nakedness. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who lies with any kind of animal. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who lies with his sister, whether the daughter of his father or the daughter of his mother, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who lies with his mother-in-law, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who strikes down his neighbor in secret, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who takes a bribe to shed innocent blood, and all the people shall say, Amen. And then it ends this section of their charge with the word that Paul quotes. Cursed be anyone who does not confirm to the words of this law. Remember, they're standing before these pillars with the law engraved on them. Cursed be anyone who does not conform to the words of this law by doing them, and the people shall say, Amen. Now it's true that the law makes provision for transgression by sacrifice. It's a sacrifice which God says in Leviticus 17.11, I've given. It's not a sacrifice you're giving. It's not another work you're doing. It's a sacrifice I've given for you to make atonement by the blood. 
So it's true that the law makes provision for their transgressions. But the law, as it came to Israel, came within the context of God's covenant love and His redemption. These Judaizers are now saying that the Christ, who is the fulfillment of God's covenant love for man, the Christ who is the fulfillment of all that was anticipated in these sacrifices, is insufficient. Do you see how they flipped the very scenario that you have in Leviticus and Exodus and Deuteronomy? Rather than realizing our works are insufficient. And thus we need a sacrifice. The Judaizers are saying the sacrifice is insufficient. And we need works. And so as I said whenever we began this study, you will see that the Judaizers pervert and twist not only the gospel, but the law. The Judaizers want the cake without the icing. They want the medicine of the law without the sugar of the gospel. But what we're seeing is that the sugar of the gospel not only helps the law go down, it is what turns it from being poison to medicine. The Judaizers want righteousness by law. And the doing that must be done according to the sheer principle of the law is complete and total obedience. You want it without any sacrifice? Without any context of covenant love? You must do all. And cursed be any who do not. What does it mean then to be cursed by God. Listen to just 10 of the 54 verses in Deuteronomy 28 that elaborate what the curse is. If you will not obey the voice of Yahweh your God and be careful to do all His commandments. Pause there. You may have, if you were sharply attuned, Whenever you heard Deuteronomy 27-26, you may have recognized that the word all wasn't in there the way Paul is saying it was in verse 10. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things. And the reason is, is understand this. Whenever you see Paul and the New Testament authors quoting the Old Testament, they aren't quoting it with our rigid kind of idea that we think of and our strict They didn't have a fear of copyright ruling coming against them. He was referencing the theological idea, largely using the language of that specific verse, but that he's getting at the idea that God is communicating is clear whenever you come to the next chapter where where Moses is still unfolding the same thing and you read, 
if you will not obey the voice of Yahweh your God and be careful to do all His commandments and statutes that I am commanding you this day, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in, and cursed shall you be when you go out. Yahweh will send on you curses, confusion, and frustration in all that you undertake to do until you are destroyed and perish quickly on account of the evil of your deeds. Because you have forsaken me, Yahweh will make the pestilence stick to you until He has consumed you off the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Yahweh will strike you with wasting disease with fever, inflammation, and fiery heat, and with drought, and with blight, and with mildew. They shall pursue you until you perish. And the heavens over your head shall be bronze, and the earth under you shall be iron. Yahweh will make the rain of your land powder. From heaven dust shall come down upon you until you are destroyed. The curse of God is not some impersonal law of nature. The curse of the law is the curse of God. He will make, He will strike, He will make, we read. God isn't telling us not to fool around with electricity because He's dangerous. He's telling us not to fool around with Him because He's dangerous. This isn't like the father telling the child, don't stick the screwdriver in the light socket. This is the parent telling the child, don't test me. The curse of God is personal. To be under the curse means to have all that God is against you. And the most succinct statement of blessedness found in the Scriptures is the Aaronic blessing in Numbers chapter 6. The priests were instructed to bless the people in this way. Yahweh bless you and keep you. Yahweh make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. Yahweh lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. What it means to be cursed is the inverse of that. R.C. Sproul captured it this way. May Yahweh, or the Lord, curse you and abandon you. May the Lord keep you in darkness and give you only judgment without grace. May the Lord turn His back upon you and remove His peace from you forever. So if you want to stand on your own two feet, this is where you stand. Under the curse of God Almighty, a child of wrath like the rest of mankind, Ephesians 2. If you do not obey all the law, all these curses 
shall come upon you. Bolstering this idea, Paul goes on to show it's evident, he says, verse 11, that no one is justified before God by the law because the Old Testament Scriptures tell us the righteous shall live by faith. Righteousness is not by doing in regards to the law, but by believing, faithing the gospel. Now, some smarty-pants scholars with a lot of initials by their name want to tell us that Paul is misusing this text from Habakkuk 2.4. In the original context, God has revealed to Habakkuk that he will judge and chastise his people for their covenant disloyalty by using a wicked nation, the Babylonians. And on the hills of Habakkuk, having lamented this, God tells him, the righteous shall live by his faith. It's true that in the original setting, this had reference not to someone believing unto eternal life. It didn't have reference to conversion, to someone believing and then because of that belief being counted righteous. That's not the original context. The, the idea is not the belief unto eternal life, but belief as life. The way that the righteous live is by faith. So is Paul using this out of context? Abusing, manipulating the text for his point? What Paul says here is not anything less than what Habakkuk, anything more than what Habakkuk said. Let me get this right. Let me think. What Paul is saying here is not, let me put it this way. Now I got it. What Habakkuk says is not anything less than what Paul says here, but something more. With me? What Habakkuk says covers a broader scope. So whenever Paul says, uses it in defense of justification, it's totally legit. It's included in what Habakkuk has said. Habakkuk is referring to something broader and more encompassing. All the Christian life is by faith. All of life, as it's lived unto God, in regards to those who are righteous before Him, all of their life is one of faith. That's what Paul said in Galatians 2.20. The life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. But if that's not enough, listen to how Paul uses Habakkuk in Romans. I'm not ashamed of the Gospel because it's the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, in the Gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith For faith, for, as it is written, the righteous shall live by 
faith. So whenever Paul expounds on it in Romans, you see that he's getting at the idea that all of the Christian life, it's from faith, for faith, all of the Christian life is by faith. The righteous live. Those who are righteous before God live in every sense by faith. And that necessarily includes the genesis of their life and conversion, regeneration. Everything that's involved there is in regards to faith in the Gospel, not works of the law. The law is antithetical to this. Verse 12. It's not a faith, but by doing. And now Paul quotes another Old Testament text. Leviticus 18.5 And again, there are those who will say Paul's taking that one out of context. Because a covenant context is clearly assumed in Leviticus 18.5. It's prefaced this way. Yahweh spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am Yahweh your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am Yahweh your God. You shall therefore, not so that I might be your God, but because I am your God, You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am Yahweh. Covenant name of God. So there, God is speaking to His covenant people who redeemed out of the land of Egypt by the blood of the Lamb. But the point again is that the Judaizers don't say that they want to do works of righteousness Because they are in covenant. They want to do works of righteousness to be in covenant. The Judaizers are not saying that our works are insufficient so we need a sacrifice. They're saying the sacrifice is insufficient so we need to do works. And so Paul says, okay, you want sheer law, divorce from any gospel, any covenant love, Any sacrifice. You want sheer law? Here's the principle. Do and live. It's true. God never gave Israel His law in a way divorced from covenant and sacrifice. He never said, okay, you try it. That's not the way He gave His law. What Paul is doing is extracting the principle of the law that abides under man because of how Adam disobeyed from the context of the greatest exposition of the law that we have, which is in the context of covenant. And he's extracting the principle of the law. You want law minus any reference to sacrifice and covenant, and here's the principle of the law. Do and live. In light of these fresh arguments, Paul now goes on to positively present the gospel again. And it's in light 
of what he's unfolding in regards to the law and the curse. And one of the most astounding things concerning our Lord's atonement comes to light. But first, getting there, we're simply told that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. This is the language of the marketplace. This is the language of payment. He redeemed us. He ransomed us, the word could be translated. He bought us. How did He purchase us? What currency did He use? The most precious and rare commodity that's ever existed on this earth. The blood of God. The phrase strikes you, it should. It's jolting to many theologians whenever they read. In fact, they want to rearrange the text whenever they read in Acts 20, 28, where Paul speaks of the church of God which he obtained, he purchased with his own blood. The problem that theologians have with that is that deity cannot bleed. Exactly. That's why Christ must become Emmanuel. He cannot bleed as to His divinity. But the person Christ who is God can bleed because He took on flesh. You must be redeemed by blood and nothing less than the blood of the One who is God. You must be redeemed not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that is a lamb without blemish or spot. The Son took on flesh that He might redeem us by His blood, Galatians 4.4. 4. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born under a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. What does it mean that Jesus redeemed us by His blood? He redeemed us by becoming a curse for us. There's so much here. First, you see there's penal substitutionary atonement. It was substitutionary. It was for us. It involved a penalty being paid. He redeemed us by becoming a curse. This was to atone for our sins so that we might be reconciled to God. But this is what's really astonishing. is that this text is telling us that redemption happened by means of propitiation. That the Son propitiated the Father. That He appeased. He satisfied. He satiated. He placated. The curse that was upon us because of our transgressions. As J.I. Packer puts it, Jesus was the wrath quencher. 
Listen to the way Paul ties together redemption, propitiation, and justification in Romans 3. Now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, though the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift. Here it is. How is it that this comes to you? How is it that we are accounted, reckoned righteous before God? This happens through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. So the payment of blood spent to redeem us is speaking to a redemption happening by means of propitiation in which God is satisfying the wrath of God by bearing the curse. We are due in our place. Isaiah tells us that it was the will of the Father to crush the Son. The almighty hand of the Father gripped crushingly around His Son without reserve for us. The great Scott teacher John Duncan asked his theology students, do you know what Calvary was? What? 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 And then it's recorded with tears streaming down his face. He replied, it was damnation. And he took it lovingly. Damnation taken lovingly. Many blasphemously ridicule this truth. With one esteemed Christian, professedly Christian theologian saying it's cosmic child abuse. Another referring to this as blood dripping and weird stuff. They understand nothing of the triune God and His love. John Stott, rather, observes, it is God Himself who in holy wrath needs to be propitiated. God Himself who in holy love undertook to do the propitiating. And God Himself who in the person of His Son died for the propitiation of our sins. Thus God took His own loving initiative to appease His own righteous anger by bearing it in His own, his own self, in His own Son, when He took our place and died for us. There is no crudity here to evoke our ridicule. Only the profundity of holy love to evoke our worship. The Father cursed the Son. The Son bore the curse. And there was a sacrifice in this on the part of every member of the triune Godhead. It wasn't just the Son 
willingly taking this upon Himself and all the pain that would be involved therein. It was the Father agreeing to this as well and the Spirit agreeing to strengthen the Son whom He loved to go to the cross to bear the Father's wrath. And as evidence that such an astonishing thing would be so, we would not dare to say that the Father cursed the Son otherwise. But as evidence that it's so, he quotes Deuteronomy 21-23. In its fuller context we read, if a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he's put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day for a hanged man is cursed by God. Those who have so violated the law that they're to be executed according to the law may then be hung on a tree as a testimony in this regard. And what it speaks to is that they are cursed of God. And this is why the idea of a crucified Messiah was so repulsive to the Jew that Paul would tell the Corinthians, we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to the Jews. And even so, the apostles are not shy to refer to the cross as a tree again and again. Whenever Paul preached to the Jews in Antioch, Pisidia, in Galatia, He spoke of Jesus being taken down from the tree, Acts 13.29. Peter told the Jewish leaders, The God of our fathers raised Jesus whom you killed by hanging Him on a tree, Acts 5.30. Peter, whenever he preached to Cornelius, told him that the Jews put Him to death by hanging Him on a tree, Acts 10.39. And that Peter understands the same theological significance of being put on that tree. It's evident whenever he writes in his first letter, 2.24, that He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree. Herein is the great failing of every depiction of the crucifixion of our Lord. None of them ever even portray the physical suffering of our Lord to its full ugliness and horror. But none of them can possibly portray the greatest agony that was His. Bearing the curse of His beloved Father for whom His delight His food was to do His will. The late R.C. Sproul reflected, I've heard sermons about the nails and the thorns. Granted, the physical agony of crucifixion is a ghastly thing. But thousands of people have died on crosses. Others have had even more painful, excruciating deaths than that. But only one 
received the full measure of the curse of God while on a cross. Because of that, I wonder whether Jesus was even aware of the nails and thorns. He was overwhelmed by the outer darkness. On the cross, He was in hell, totally bereft of the grace and the presence of God, utterly separated from all blessedness of the Father. He became a curse for us so that one day we will be able to see the face of God. Why was Christ cursed? Yes, it was for us so that that curse might not fall upon us, but is the only blessing, immeasurable as it may be, that Paul wants to get at here negative? Now he gives two positive ones as well. He was cursed first, verse 14, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. The blessing of Abraham comes to the Gentiles not by works of the law, but by faith. And this blessing that's being unfolded for us here again, it is holistic. It is blessing in total, in whole. It involves the redemption of all things. Whenever you're told you're blessed with Abraham, it means you are a beneficiary of the redemption of all things by Christ to be enjoyed in Christ and unto Christ. Romans 4.13 tells us, the promise to Abraham and his offspring, so rewind a bit, verse 7, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Back to Romans. The promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Why was Christ cursed? Yes, it was for us in our place. What are the blessings that unfold for that? Isaac Watts realized the wholeness of it. Whenever Christ returns, He will come to make His blessings flow far as the curse is found. The blessing of God that's ours in Christ isn't in the state of some spiritual gas, but comes in liquid and solid form as well. The blessing of God isn't just in our head and in our heart. It's three-dimensional. It will be. The blessing of Abraham isn't measured simply with a barometer, but with a yardstick. It involves more than data floating in the clouds of our heads. It involves dirt under our feet. The redemption of all things. As the inheritance 
of the saints, join heirs with Christ, sons of Abraham, at the center of all this blessedness is the Lamb. Our triune God in Him. And everything else just speaks and testifies to that and is a way of communing and glorifying and enjoying the God who redeemed us to Himself. The second, we're told that Christ was cursed so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. Verse 14, the promised Holy Spirit and the promised blessings, again, are not two separate blessings, but are intertwined, relinked, and, and inseparably related. The receiving of the one speaks to your having the other. In Isaiah 44, 3, God promised Israel, I will pour my I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. If you have the spirit, you have the blessing. The spirit comes as a guarantee of this full and whole salvation. Ephesians 1, 13-14 In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation... We're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. The gift of the Holy Spirit is that future breaking into the present assuring you that that future, that redemption of all things is yours. And the reason why this is so incredible is because the down payment couldn't be any more massive Can you be assured that such a future is yours? Saints, He's given you Himself already in the Spirit. The Spirit of His Son, the Spirit who unites us to the Son, in whom God's every promise is yes and amen. He'll give you dirt. He's already given you the Spirit. The promised Holy Spirit then promises still. He was promised, and now having Him, He promises all these things as ours in Christ. So can you see why the doctrine of justification is so critical? If you go wrong here, you go wrong all the way down, and you go wrong all the way out. If you go wrong here, you go wrong all the way down. If you don't get this doctrine right, it reveals that you're also misfiring on imputation, union with Christ, the federal headship of Christ, the obedience of Christ, redemption, substitution, propitiation, the significance of the incarnation. You miss on all of this. You go wrong all the way down. Not only so, you go wrong all the way out. You miss all involved in the blessing of Abraham and the promised Holy Spirit and the significance of that. This is why a rejection of this truth is so cataclysmic that Paul would say, even if we 
or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we've said before now, I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you receive, let him be accursed. In the gospel of Christ, the gospel of Christ crucified, there's blessing. In any other gospel, this is what will be seen to be the foundation of any other message. The law. And if that's how you choose to stand before God, it is evident that you're cursed. So sinner, I plead with you as James Proctor did, to lay your deadly doing down. Till to Jesus' work you cling, alone by simple faith. Doing is a deadly thing. Doing ends in death. Cast your deadly doing down. Down all at Jesus' feet. Stand in Him, in Him alone. All glorious and complete. Sinner, do not look to the works of your own hands, but to the works of the crucified hands of Christ who bore the curse in place of sinners. Trust in Him, in Him alone, and you will be counted righteous, and blessedness will be yours forevermore, complete and total and full. Let's pray. Father, it's almost, you hesitate to say it, and yet we must, but thank you for the cursed Christ. He was not worthy of such. We were. But thank you that he was cursed for us. Father, save any sinner here that's relying on their own works to look to the cursed Christ in faith. In Christ's name, amen.